You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this afternoon. We'll turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 10, the verses 19 through 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching if we deliberately keep on sinning After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But does God not do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. 
But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he's also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the words that we take onto our lips, that we apply to our hearts this afternoon in Lord's Day 4, come in the context, of course, of Lord's Day 1. Everywhere you are in this catechism, the teachings of Scripture that are coming through in this question and answer format of the catechism, we always need to understand, to, to know that context, that these words are being spoken of by the one who has already confessed that I'm not my own, but that I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These are words that are confessed by the person who knows that they belong to Jesus Christ, who knows the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ, and know that grace as the grace which has saved them, and know that Savior as the Savior which has saved them. It's it's in that knowledge and with that confession that we walk through this first part of the catechism considering our sin and misery. As those who belong to Jesus Christ, we need to understand our sin and misery. And the, as we understand that more, it will lead not to our, our depression, not to, to our sense of, of worthlessness. But rather, it will lead to praise and thanksgiving to God. It will lead to worship. It will lead us to worship the God who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And so considering in Lord's Day 4 this afternoon, God's justice must also lead us along that track. Considering God's justice will lead us, if we properly understand it, we properly comprehend God's justice as revealed to us in his word, it will lead us to worship him. To worship him, the God who is just, to adore him and thank him that he has revealed himself to be a just God who carries out his justice. And so our theme this afternoon is that those who belong to Christ adore God's justice. Those who belong to Jesus Christ worship God because he's just. As we work that out, as we consider that, we'll see that God is just. It's, it's who he is. It's part of his character. But going beyond that, God carries out justice. He's not a benign God. He's not an armchair judge. He carries out his justice. Then most wonderfully, we'll see that even in his justice, God is merciful. In fact, the greatest act of God's justice reveals his mercy most clearly to us. So God, in the first place, is just. The first question that the catechism asks is a striking question. It, For someone who has already confessed that they belong to Jesus Christ, they know the word of God, it's a jarring question. 
It's a question that it doesn't sit right with you even as you ask it. But does God not do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? It's a jarring question, putting God and injustice together. But it's a question that flows out from, from question and answer eight. But are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, we are. But if we are so corrupt that we're totally inclined totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil, then how do we make sense of the fact that God calls on us to do good, to be righteous? We can't do this, but God requires it of us. How does that work? How does that fit? Does that fit with God's justice? So the catechism captures the the human response. Doesn't this mean that God is unjust? What if parents and teachers were to operate this way? Requiring of of grade 1 students what they expect of grade 12 students. Requiring of of grade 1 students who simply cannot do the things that grade 12 students can do. What if they were to hold that standard up to them and say, well, you'll fail as long as you cannot meet that standard. We would say that... The, the teacher is all wrong. The standard is all wrong. It's not the children's fault. It's the teacher's. Is that what's happening? As God requires in his law what we cannot do. As the catechism points out, God is not doing man an injustice. In fact, God cannot do and injustice. Elihu, speaking to Job in Job chapter 34, verse 12, is right when he says this, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. It is unthinkable. Cannot be fathomed. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things after he's recorded in chapter 1 all the evil things that the Gentiles, that the pagans do, he says in chapter 2, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. It's based on truth. So how do we know that God is just? See, we're approaching this question from a different angle, we began by asking, is the standard all wrong? And to answer it, we don't say, well, let's look at the standard. Let's look at the, let's look at the, the people involved here. No, rather what we do is we take a step back and we say, let's think about first who God is. Who do we know God to be? And let's proceed from there. And we know that God is just. And how do we know that God is just? Because he has revealed himself as just in his word. That's how we know that God is just. We don't know that God is just by looking at everything around us. We can confirm that God is just on the basis of his word. With that foundation, we can proceed to look at the things around us in this world. But we can't start there or we will get confused. Very short course in epistemology here. How do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? How do we know that God is just? We know what we know. We know that God is just through his word because he's revealed it. His word is trustworthy and his trustworthy word has revealed that God is just. 
And so we don't know that God is just because it fits with some system of logic that we've concocted or because we can observe it and verify it in the world around us. We know it because God has told us that he is just in his true and certain word. So then following from that, we ask the question, what happens when we can't line up things with our sense of God? What happens when we can't line up the things that we see in this world with this understanding that God is just? If we're legitimately asking this question, how can God require in his law what man cannot do? How can we put that together? Because this happens, doesn't it? Even if this isn't the question that you're asking, there's so many things that go wrong in this world that you don't have an explanation for. That you, you look, you see something, a loved one, a certain situation, a whole country, the state of, of fallen humanity, and you, you think, how can God be just? How do, how does this work? How does this fit with what we know about God? And so what do we do? We change our conception of God? No. God has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself as just. And so we must conclude that the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Nehemiah 9 verse 33. Nehemiah confesses, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Now that statement had a certain context with Nehemiah, but that is the way that we ought to proceed. Lord, we know that you are just. And if we cannot line that up with our sense of things, then it must be we who are wrong. That's the confession of faith. We're determined to honor God as God, as he is. Believe God is God and accept that we are the ones with the limitations, with the faults, with the, the broken understanding of things. As the catechism teaches, that's what the word of God teaches. And then it proceeds one step further. Not only is our conception of things broken so that we ought not to to line up our sense of justice with with how God de- decrees and shows himself to be just. But even in this, how can God punish us for doing, for not doing what we're not able to do? We say there too, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. It's not that God is unjust. It's that we are unfaithful. Is that we have been unfaithful. And then we go back to Lord's day three. God created Adam and Eve good. He created them good. He created them able to obey his law in every way. That's how God created mankind. That's how God created Adam and Eve. And God truly did create them. But they truly did fall into sin. They fell. And so God is not unjust in holding us to the standard of perfect righteousness because that is how he created us in the very beginning. When he created Adam and Eve. Going back just for one moment to Lord's Day 3. You see a problem of, of becoming fuzzy on the historical reality of the fall into sin. If we say, well, it didn't really happen or this didn't happen in that way. 
no Adam, no Eve. One consequence of that, among others, which we discussed last week, one consequence is that suddenly it's not us who bear the fault for falling into sin. Adam didn't fall, if he didn't truly fall into sin, then who bears the fault? It's God? Someone else? Not our fault? God's word reveals that it is our fault because Adam and Eve fell into sin. So those who belong to Jesus Christ believe what the scripture says is true, that God is just. But God also carries out his justice. God is just part of his eternal, unchanging character. But God's just character is not a benign, benign just character. That's how we are, isn't it? We're like armchair judges. Sit back, view things in the world, and we judge things. We dispense judgments about this or that. That's good, that's not. I like that, don't like that. We do that all the time. In the wonderful world of the internet, We're always getting these little bite-sized pieces, these little morsels of opinion or information, and we sit there like little judges, and we say, oh, I like that, that's good. I don't like that, discard that. We don't do anything about it. Just take it in, you you judge it. You're on Facebook, you see it, and you like it. Like that, like that, like that. Don't like that. We can judge things without taking any action about them. But God is not like that. Not only is God perfectly just, but unlike us, he's also actively just. That is, he carries out his justice. He is the ever-active, ever-judging God. God is doing this right now. Right now, God, the just God, is active in his justice. The catechism doesn't dwell on this aspect of God's justice, but in considering what God's word says, we need to, to, to bring this in as well. I think it's good to bring this in. Hold it in the balance. That there are aspects of God's justice which he's working out right now. One of them is that God upholds the oppressed. So many psalms, so many passages that reveal that God upholds the oppressed. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, said, I came to preach good news for the poor. I came to break the chains of those who are oppressed. God has particular concern, his word teaches us, for those who are oppressed, for those who are truly victimized, abused, and hurt. That's what scripture reveals to us. Now it's true that the oppressed person may not feel this upholding power of God, but those whose eyes are open to it, will see the sustaining and strengthening grace of God in their hour of need. Because that's how God works out his justice in this world. A second way that God works out his justice is that he vindicates those who are wronged. God abhors the miscarriage of justice. When when justice is turned on its head, God abhors that. And he works actively in this world to, to set things right. To right the wrongs that are carried out. God upholds justice. Doesn't mean everything in this world is always just. But where there is justice, God is working. And God calls us as his people to reflect God's active justice in these ways. To uphold the oppressed. To vindicate those 
who are wronged. We have a calling as God's church in this area. Because God is actively just, we are called to be actively just, to actively work according to God's justice. The scripture also reveals another aspect of God's justice. This is the eternal dispensing of justice, or the dispensing of justice, you might say, with eternal results. This is the type of justice that the catechism zooms in on here in Lord's Day 4, that in the first place, God punishes sin. This is the dispensing of God's justice with eternal results, that God punishes sin. Ezekiel 18, verse 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor their father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. God punishes sin. According to what standard does God punish sin? According to his law, Galatians 3, which we, which we confess in this Lord's Day, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. God has his standard. Through that standard, he teaches us what sin is. And he punishes those who do not live up to that standard. Or we might better say, who do not fulfill that standard. God punishes actual and original sins, the catechism says. He's terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. Well, what is that distinction? What What is that, you may say, if you're not familiar with those words? Well, original sin communicates that sin is, is basic and fundamental to every person born as a descendant of Adam and Eve. It's that sin which we inherit from Adam and Eve, original sin. Their nature became corrupt when they sinned. So every person born after them is also not perfect. Their nature is corrupt. It has been corrupted. It's nothing within us, not some gene that went wrong, not some problem in our DNA. It's just what happened to our nature, spiritually. Corrupt, affects us in every way. In fact, we became totally depraved. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So the Apostle Paul is speaking both about original sin and actual sins. The original sin is that by nature we were objects of wrath. Who we were, fallen humanity. Original sin is like is like the water in the well. It's been poisoned. It was originally good, but it became poisoned. It's corrupted. It's not what it was meant to be or what it was made to be. The actual sins are all that water that gets drawn out from that. Everything that we do as those born into sin, born under sin, born under Adam and Eve, all the actions that we do are tainted by this, this well of sin. You dip your, your bucket into the, the poisoned well, you're going to get poisoned water from it. 
That poison water is going to go on your, for your plant. You're going to drink that. It's going to have an effect. Original sin has an effect for us in terms of our actual sins. That's what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2 where he said, in which we already read, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. It's the outworking of our original sin. That's our actual sin. So how does God respond in his justice to the sin? God's an active, actively just God. How does he respond? Well, God punishes sin, and he punishes it in the first place temporally. This is clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. A God punishes sin temporally, both indirectly and directly. Just think of the commands that are given in the Old Testament, for example, to the community, to the covenant community, to the elders. The elders were to dispense justice. So if someone would sin, someone would commit adultery, steal, kill, what would happen? They'd be punished. It was God dispensing punishment for sin temporally. Or you can think of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. What would happen when the Israelites would fall into sin, when they would be unfaithful? God would punish them by the operation of his providence and his control of droughts and plagues. He would send droughts and plagues upon them. In the New Testament, this continues. As we read in Romans chapter 13, that Paul says the government is God's servant to punish the evildoer. So if someone sins, someone breaks the law, the government is the one that's supposed to punish them for that. That's an indirect way in which God punishes sin. There's also direct ways. We read in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that people were dying as a direct result of how they were mishandling the Lord's Supper. They were, they were mishandling the Lord's Supper and they were dying as a result. And Paul said, that's a direct punishment from God. So God punishes sin temporally. He punishes it within our lifetime, you might say. God also punishes sin eternally. Many passages that speak of the final, ultimate punishment that will come to sinners. In fact, all the promises regarding the punishment of the wicked, all those psalms that say, God is the one who punishes the wicked. God will bring justice on the wicked. God will right all the wrongs. All of those promises hang on the reality of God's ultimate eternal punishment of sinners. That's the only way we can make sense of it. Because as other Psalms say, I'm going around and I, I see that the wicked aren't being punished. And that the tables of justice are being turned over. What's going on? Well, God tells his people, yes, I punish sin temporally. But I ultimately punish sin eternally. Matthew 25, the Lord Jesus clearly lays out the scene. He says, when the son of man comes into glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he concludes and he says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, all the goats, but the righteous to eternal life. There's another passage that speaks clearly about this eternal punishment for sin. 
2 Thessalonians 1. It says that God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. This passage couldn't be more clear in stating the character of God. God is just and also the character of God's judgment. An everlasting destruction wherein they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. We have within our confessions a very brief, succinct summary of what Scripture teaches on this in Article 37 of the Belgian Confession. Beginning of the third paragraph in Article 37 of the Belgian Confession, we read this. The wicked will be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences and will become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Will become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire. God is just. His is an active justice. And he does punish sin, both now and eternally. This is a reality. This is what God's word teaches. This is what God reveals in his word. But as he reveals this to us, the reality of his judgment, and it's terrible. It is. It's a terrible thing to even comprehend, but it's true. But as he communicates this to us, he also communicates to us another beautiful truth, which leads us to our last point, that even in his justice, God is merciful. We see that already in 2 Thessalonians 1, which we just read together. Because at the same time that that we read that the wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, we also re- we also learn that some will be saved who know God and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why will they be saved? Because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. God is just in punishing sin. But those who belong to Jesus Christ know the truth about what Jesus Christ has done. We already confess that in Lord's Day 1. My faithful Savior has fully paid Himself. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. My faithful Savior has fully paid for all my sins. God punishes sin, but He's paid for it. What does that mean? I'm spared. I'm saved. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals that the most merciful act of God, in fact, is the carrying out of his justice. When God poured out his righteous judgment upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The full weight of God's judgment, God active in his justice, poured out upon Jesus Christ, punishing sin and sinners, where God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. As God carried out his justice in Jesus Christ, he reveals himself to be a merciful God. 
Because he punished Jesus not for Jesus' sins, but for the sins of all those who believe in him. This is the ultimate display of God's mercy when he poured out his judgment on his son to spare all who believe in him. But there's more. There's more to God's mercy as we consider his justice. For example, we can think of the warnings that scripture gives us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. We have this strong warning where the writer says, if in the old covenant people got punished, what about those who trample on the son of God? who treat as an unholy thing the promises of God, what's going to happen to them? He warns them strongly, beware of the coming judgment. Why does he bring this warning so strongly to them? It's because of the mercy of God. He's saying, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Continue to cling by faith to Jesus Christ. Endure this time. and You will be saved. That warning comes so strongly Because God is merciful. He does not want us to fall. He does not want us to lose sight. He wants us to be warned. He wants us to fear his judgment. So that we won't fall under it ourselves. God shows his mercy in his warnings. He also shows his mercy in his waiting. Why is there so much injustice around us? Why does this world continue on? Why is there so much sin? Well, because God is waiting. God is waiting. God is being patient with this world. 2 Peter 3. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is waiting because he's still saving. He's still extending his mercy. He's still calling people into light out of darkness. God shows us his mercy in his waiting. God also shows his mercy in his temporal judgments. His temporal judgments. God punishes sin within our lifetime so that we might recognize what sin is. Sometimes that's what we need, don't we? You're carrying on, thinking you're doing everything fine, and then suddenly you realize, that was wrong. I'm bearing this punishment because what what I was doing was wrong. It makes you think about what you've done. brings you to repentance. This is what God does with us. It's what God does as he calls people repentance and faith. Why does God punish us temporally? Is it not to bring sinners to repentance? Is it not to cause people to fear him? To understand that he is a holy God, a righteous God, to fear him. So that fearing him, they might trust him and the sacrifice of his son so that they might be spared from the coming wrath. Bearing that temporal punishment so that they might be spared of the eternal punishment. God is merciful, even in his justice. Ultimately, through Jesus Christ. And within that, as he warns, as he waits, and even as he punishes us, and punishes temporally, brings pain for sin. God is just. God carries out his justice. And in the carrying out of his justice, he reveals to us and to this whole world his rich and abundant mercy in Jesus Christ. Amen.
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.